Well, please join me now in 2 Peter chapter 1, and today we're going to talk about our growing in grace. So what would you do if someone gave you a new car? It's not about to happen right here in the service, but, but I wish it for you this week. Maybe somebody will do it. But, but what would you do if somebody were to give you a new car? Well, the first thing you would do is you would celebrate. And maybe you would celebrate like on those game shows, like The Price is Right. Usually when a new car comes out, people start bouncing up and down. There would certainly be celebration. But I want to know what you would do next after the celebration. Because whoever would give you a car, they want something from you and for you. Now, they're not going to want payment because we just said this is a gift as we think this through. But one of the things that a giver of a car would want from you is that you would actually drive the car that you would use it, that you would enjoy it. That's why they gave it. But there's something else they would want from you. They would want you to maintain it. They'd want you to take care of this car they gave to you. Well, this morning, we're going to be reminded that our God has given us something amazing, far more than a mere new car. He's given us a saving faith. He's given us salvation. And we're going to see what does he want from us now that we've received that free gift from him. So let's consider together, is it possible that God saved you from your sins and the judgment to come in order for you to stay in those sins and to live in them? Is that possible? Or is it possible that God would save you from your sins, destined for heaven now, but the goal is just for us to sit around and wait for him to come for us? No, we're going to see in our text today that God intends for us to grow in grace. We're to actually build up this faith that he has given to us. Let's see it together in our text, 2 Peter 1, verses 5 through 7, as we get started. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. Peter here begins verse 5 with that statement, for this very reason. And of course, that points us back. What was he just talking about that he can now build on that and say for this very reason? Well, he's been talking about the grace of God, how gracious and generous God has been. We've obtained a faith from him. We have everything that we need for life and godliness. And so because of that, even those words about these very precious promises he's given, for this reason then, he says, make every effort to do something. Essentially, it's going to tell us, make every effort to grow up in the Lord and to be fruitful. But let's pause here. Is there a contradiction here? To talk about grace, 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 and the generosity of God, and then to pivot to effort, effort, effort. Words like make every effort. Is there a contradiction between grace and then our effort afterwards? No, there's no contradiction. We have been saved by God freely as a gift. Jesus did all the work on the cross. We believe in him for everlasting life. But remember, we've been saved from some things, but at the same time, we've been saved to some things. We've been saved for some things. So we were saved from our sins, saved from hell, and we've been saved for a brand new life in relationship with God. And so it's not contradictory for God in the word to talk about you've been saved by grace, and now expend some effort in this direction that I've now called you into. Famously, we see this in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and then verse 10. 
Listen to this, Ephesians 2, 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. But then verse 10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So our salvation, not of our own doing. It's not of works. We've been born again, but born again to join God in what he's now doing. So we might say this way, I've been born again into the family of God, and now I join the family business. God's business is he's always at work, and everything he does is good. We've been born into that family, and we join him in what he's doing. So a saving faith always produces works. As many people have said, the faith that saves is a faith that works. And James spoke this way, James 2.14, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Or James 2.18, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. Or James 2.26, for as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead dead. We're just making the point here as we move into talking about our effort that there is no contradiction between being saved by grace and then following that by a desire to, to exert effort in following after Christ. So notice here Peter in our text says that we are to supplement our faith. He says make every effort to supplement or add to your faith and he's going to list for us here seven qualities that we are to build up on the foundation of this faith we've received from him. Remember, verse 1, you've obtained this faith, this saving faith. Verse 3, he's granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. He's loaded us up, but now we're to implement these things and act on these things in our lives. So the first thing he says you should add to your faith is virtue. Supplement your faith with virtue. This is a word that means goodness or it means moral excellence. So in contrast to the corruption of the world that he talked about in verse 4, we now are in Christ, and this shapes the life we are to now live. It's a life marked by moral excellence. 1 John 1, 7 says, walk in the light as he is in the light, and we exert effort in that. Lord, I want to follow after you. So when he saves us, he leads us out of that old life we have that was dominated by sin into a brand new direction, walking in the virtues of God, those things that God calls good. But even here we come back to grace and we think, where did that desire come from that now in Christ, I want to walk a life of moral excellence. Where did that desire come from? Even that is from God, that new desire. So we all know that we still struggle with temptation towards sin, very real, very powerful. But we also now, ha now have in Christ this new desire. To, oh, I don't want to do those things I'm tempted to do. I have this new desire to follow after Christ. Where did that come from? Oh, that's the work of God. Philippians 2, 13 says this, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So evidence of grace in your life is that you now have a new desire. Oh, I do want to follow the Lord. I'm so disappointed when I succumb to temptation. I have this new desire to follow Christ and that is an evidence that I've come to know Christ. So add to your faith this virtue this walking after God in what he calls good. Secondly, we're to add to our faith 
knowledge. So add to your, add to your faith virtue and then knowledge. And we talked about knowledge some last time. We are to grow in our knowledge of God. We are to grow in our knowledge of truth. We're to grow in our knowledge of God's will. We're to grow in a personal knowledge with him. It should be clear to us by now that God is big on you acquiring more and more knowledge of him. He has loaded us up. So God has not left it to us to go find that knowledge somewhere. In fact, it would be a colossal mistake if today you thought, you know what I'm going to do in my quest for knowledge, I'm going to buy a plane ticket to Tibet or I'm going to go trek Nepal. And I'm going to there find myself or I'm going to find God while I'm out there roaming around. That would be a a huge mistake because as I look around the room, you have paper copies of the Bible on your laps, many of you. You have electronic copies of it. God has given you everything you need for knowledge of him. God has spoken to you through the prophets and it's recorded in your scriptures. He's spoken to you through the apostles and that's recorded for you in the scriptures. God wants you to grow in that knowledge. So consider last time we talked about the more knowledge we have of God, this biblical knowledge, the greater our capacity for joy in the Lord. So the more you know about God, you should have greater peace in your life. The more you learn about God biblically, you should have greater growing faith in your life. So consider how awesome it is to know how awesome God is. A person who understands and knows God in deeper and deeper, you know the attributes of God, it begins to shape your life. So for instance, if you know the holiness of God, you're, you're beginning to understand something of the holiness of God, you have a greater sense of awe than people who don't know that. When you know about his love, you want to draw near to him. When you think about how he's omnipotent and omniscient and omnipresent, you want to be near him and you trust him more and more. When you know that God is patient, that shapes you. When you know that he's slow to anger and so forgiving, So we want to know more about God. We're adding to our faith knowledge, growing in that, and it becomes a personal knowledge. So it's not just a history lesson or academic, but I now know this God who is described so accurately in the Scripture. It shapes your life. Let's speak to how practical this is. Have you ever experienced something in your life that you felt like, now this is an impossible situation I find myself in? You ever been there? I don't know the way out of this. I don't know how this ends well. You ever been there? And how comforting when you're in that spot to say, but, but I know God. In fact, drawing upon your biblical knowledge, it's increasing because you've added to your faith knowledge. You go, I know, I know the God who can part the Red Sea because I know he did it once. When his people were penned in at the Red Sea and Pharaoh's army was chasing after them, it was impossible. And they were told to stand still and see the salvation of their God. And God did what was humanly impossible. He made a way when there was no way. He parted The Red Sea, they went through on dry ground. Impossible, could not have done it, but God did. And you and I know that God. Do you see the benefit of increasing in our knowledge? To add to this faith, oh, Jesus, save me, be my Savior. To add to that wonderful truth of the free gift of eternal life, this growing knowledge of how great God is. Or when you go through something that makes no sense, some hardship, and then you draw upon your knowledge that you've gained, you think, okay, but I remember Job. And he didn't understand what God was doing in his life, but God was very pleased with him. So I'm going to hold on in the same way, even though I don't understand why he's allowing these things in my life. Or how about this? How many of you have drawn upon this knowledge that when you have failed and you have succumbed to a temptation and you've sinned and then you scramble for what's true? Can God forgive me? Oh, the scripture says you can be forgiven. 
He's faithful and righteous to forgive us if we'll confess our sins to him. You don't have to leave and you don't have to roam away in shame. You can be forgiven and restored because this knowledge is so key. So add to your faith knowledge, but also add self-control. What is self-control? Well, that is the ability to control your desires and your impulses rather than being dominated by those. No longer are we enslaved to what Peter calls in verse 4, those sinful desires. So self-control, critical, have to have it in our lives. In fact, every human being needs self-control. So Joy is a kindergarten teacher, teaching kindergarten now for about 10 years. And, uh, and so this is the tough time of year for a kindergarten teacher. Uh, and because at the end of the year, these kids who, they'll, they'll, be, they'll be reading quite well by the end of the year. They'll be able to write stories. I mean, they come a long way, but this is the beginning of the school year. And this is where Joy will tell me, I just forgot how little they know when they arrive into the class. But it's more than just learning to read. They don't even know how to do school at the beginning of the year. We take for granted that everybody knows how to walk in a line. They don't when they start kindergarten. And so that's part of the kindergarten teacher's job. They also don't know how to keep their hands to themselves. We, we think somebody had to teach them that. And so now they're having to do that. But, but one of the big things where they lack self-control is not just those things, but it's controlling their mouths. You know, it's, it's cute when it's just one, but you've got 19 of them in your class. That's a bit of a challenge. So if Joy mentions dog, everybody wants to talk about their dog all at the same time. i got a dog. She's got a dog. My grandmother had a dog. My dog died. It's all that going on at once. And so it has to be some teaching to, to not say everything that comes out of your mouth. One of the things that Joy does that's kind for the parents is when the kids start to tell embarrassing stories from home. They don't have a filter. It's like, I don't think your mother wants you to talk about that. So she'll try to stifle that there. But we need self-control and it has to be taught to us, but spiritually we need it. I wish I could tell you that I only need self-control because sometimes I want to talk about my puppies and my dog. But no, really, we need self-control as adults, teenagers, because a lot of things we're inclined to do, we think, that's actually shameful. That's, that actually wouldn't please God. I'd actually be embarrassed about that. And so I can't do that. Lord, I need self-control not to go in a direction that would displease you. We need it. So in our laziness, we need self-control. We need discipline in our lives. So when, when our flesh tells us, you know what, you don't, you don't want to read the Bible today. You don't want to pray today. No, no, I had to rise up. I have self-control. I, I don't have to follow that lazy impulse. Or when we're inclined toward fear, you know, this wouldn't be a good time to share the gospel with somebody else. We, we can be self-controlled. We can rise up and be disciplined. No, I, I will speak. I'm not going to let my fear dominate me. Or if our greedy heart says, take the credit card, you know what, you owe it to yourself, just be reckless, deal with the consequences later. No, we can be self-controlled. I'm not going to give in to that impulse. And then what about in the realm of lust? We might have the impulse, you know what, go ahead and just click on that. Let's go ahead and tune into that channel. But no, we can rise above that. We need self-control. So isn't this a lordship issue? Is Jesus Lord or am I Lord? Are my impulses Lord? Will my impulses and my desires rule over me or will I surrender to Christ again and again and again where in the power of the Holy Spirit, he will rule over me. So self-control allows you to consistently yield your body and your mind and your emotions over to Christ. Peter says, add to your faith, add to your faith, self-control. But then he adds forth steadfastness. Steadfastness, this is the ability to endure hardship and challenge for your faith. This is now you have this ability in Christ to be resolute. No matter what the cost, 
You're standing strong in Christ, even moving forward. You do know that God expects you to finish strong in the Christian life. You do, you do know that this isn't the end of God's vision for you, that you got up this morning and you came to a church service, but, but God's already thinking tomorrow and until he comes again that you would be steadfast for him. That's his vision for you, and it should be for yourself. You and I tend, though, to be disillusioned. We go through something difficult, and I don't know about this. Or we go through a challenge, and we'll be tempted to quit and not follow through. Or when somebody opposes us, we'll think, what I really feel like doing is going home, crawling in bed, and not getting out again. But we are called to be steadfast in Christ. And we have many examples in the Bible of people who are steadfast in their challenges, people like Moses, people like Jeremiah, people like Stephen, and Paul, and Peter, who's writing these words, and John. So add to your faith steadfastness, a spiritual ruggedness, a spiritual endurance until Christ comes again. So do you have that quality? Have you, cooperating with the Spirit, added steadfastness to your faith in Christ? It's a, it's a powerful and important quality. I love what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Love this verse. He says, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. I love that. Be steadfast. And that next word Paul uses, be immovable. Are you there? Are you there in your faith that nobody can shake you off of your faith in Christ? No matter what the threat, no matter what the persuasion, no, my feet are set in Christ. Nobody can move me off of this. I am steadfast. I am immovable. But as Paul describes it too, it's not just immovable, I'll never move from this spot, but I'm going to move forward. I certainly will never retreat now that I'm in Christ, but I will move forward. Paul said it this way, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So don't retreat, but advance. Certainly not succumb to the darkness, but going to move forward with the light of the gospel, taking it to the world. So add to your faith steadfastness, but also godliness. What's godliness? The idea of being devout, having devotion and piety toward God, a reverence and obedience to God. This was already talked about in verse 3. Remember this? His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. It's similar to the idea of being virtuous, but actually more locked in on God himself. In other words, I'm not merely seeking to be clean, but I want to be clean for a reason. I want to walk in the light because God's in the light. I want to do the things that please God because I, I love God now, and so I'm moving in this direction. But then he gives us two more to this list. He talks to us now about adding to our faith brotherly affection and love. The words there, brotherly affection, is that one Greek word that we've seen before. In 1 Peter, Philadelphian, often we refer to it brotherly love. We hear brotherly affection. And isn't this interesting? Up to now, we've been talking about things to add to our faith that are very much vertical. It's us and God. But now he tells you, you, you must add some things that are horizontal. You're, you're not walking the walk I've called you to if you're not also having brotherly affection for others in the body of Christ. This is going to show up in some ways if you have brotherly affection. It's going to show up in caring for each other. It's going to show up in encouraging other people spiritually, bearing other people's burdens, helping each other, even restoring other people when they fall. Do you have brotherly affection? But he doesn't stop there. He goes a step higher than brotherly affection, Philadelphia. He goes now to love. 
And that is that Greek word agape, that higher version of love in that Greek language, the one that's often is the love of God described, that love we're called to, that self-giving love to other people. We're called to that. So what a beautiful picture here. We have this foundation of our faith in Christ. We're making every effort now, cooperating with the Spirit, that we would build up on that foundation of faith that God gave us. And then as one described it, the capstone is this love we are to have that we're told throughout the Scriptures we're to have. How about places like notably Mark 12, 30 in the Great Commandment? And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And you're going to love your neighbor as yourself. Seven beautiful qualities that are to be a part of our Christian walk. Notice with me this now, that all of these qualities are essential. That you and I cannot get selective in our sanctification. You and I cannot become spiritual specialists. We can't be the people who say, you know what, I'm, really, I'm not really into all those seven things. My version of Christianity is I'm just into knowledge. I'm going to become a heady Christian, and I'm just going to really get into the tight theology, but I'm not so really interested in brotherly affection. That's just not my thing. You know, that's not allowed here. All these interwoven, all these critical, every one of these have to be in our lives. In fact, if we were to be that type of Christian, it's just going to be head knowledge with no love, no affection. We're very much like the Pharisees that Jesus constantly called out. So we cannot be selective in how we want to be sanctified. So I want you to do this in these moments right here. Would, would you take a moment, let your eyes look back over these verses, look at these seven qualities, and I want you to do what I did last night before preaching it to you. Last night I asked, Lord, Lord, would you look at me and would you show me myself? Am I lacking in any of these seven qualities? Have I somehow given myself a pass in those? And would you, would you look? And maybe you would see one, you go, you know what? I can see progress in my life in a number of these, but maybe he shows you, hey, you know, self-control is an issue. Or that lack of brotherly affection, that's, that's an issue. Or, or we're not seeing growing love in your life. In fact, notice here, verse 8 says, for if these qualities are yours, catch this, and are increasing. So it's God's desire that we increase in these things. And so you and God can have a conversation. Lord, I see where I need to, I need to have this in my life. I certainly see, Lord, where this needs to increase in my life. Notice with me also what's at stake. There's a benefit to having these. Verse 8, for if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So add these qualities to your life as God commands, and you will be effective. You'll be fruitful, he says. If you don't, you will be ineffective. You'll be unfruitful. In fact, he goes even deeper, verse 9, the harm of not having these in your life. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. That's accurate, isn't it? If you met a believer who's, I'm, I'm, I'm saved, I, I have faith, but I don't care at all about virtuous living now, following Christ. I don't love other people. What would you say? You think, I think something's off here. That, that person is nearsighted. That person's blinded to the very reason, the things that you've been saved for as you await heaven. In fact, it could be the indicator of somebody who's never met Christ. If they're happy to have it that way, we'll talk about that more next time. But let's close with this. How would I grow in grace like this? How would I exert effort 
after being freely saved in a way that would have these seven qualities growing in my life. Well, if you'll notice with me that these seven things are similar. There's some of these are synonymous with what we see in the listing of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. Not exactly the same, but very similar qualities. And I'm reminded by that, that really even these seven things here in Second Peter 1, these aren't things that you and I can manufacture on our own. We ought to make, ought to make every effort to put ourselves in a position where the Holy Spirit can develop these things in us, that he would finish this work of sanctification that he's working in our lives. Well, I've only been sailing maybe three or four times in my life, but this makes me think of that, how this works spiritually. In the times that I've been sailing, I know this, you have the equipment, you have a sail, and you're making every effort on a sailboat to get the sail into the wind. You can't do much. There's no outboard motor. If there's no wind, we're just dead in the water. But let's work hard to position the boat to get the sail in the position where the power of the wind can then move us forward. And the spiritual life is that way. I need the Holy Spirit's power here. I need his divine power that Peter talked about. I need his power at work creating and developing the divine nature in me that I would be more and more like Jesus. That's the standard he's working through. And so what does that look like then? To put myself in a position expending effort to do that, that the power of God might continue his changes in me. Well, first of all, it's going to involve daily surrender to him. In fact, that's what it is to be full of the Holy Spirit. When you are fully surrendered to Christ, you have no conscious areas of disobedience in your life. Lord, I'm, I'm all in. I surrender everything that you would live your life through me, shaping me, making me more like Christ and having the impact in the world that you desire. This certainly, when you make every effort to grow like this, it means you're going to you're going to devote time to meet with God, where you open up the Bible, that you might increase in the knowledge of God. Lord, I, I know no better place to do that than take up your word, read your word, and respond in prayer to you, and in that moment, surrender everything to you. And of course, this would mean conscious repentance. When you do fail and move into sin, you're quick to respond and confess that to the Lord and receive his restoration all over again because you and I need his divine power as he develops in us his character, this virtuous life that he's called us to. I love Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 9, 24 and following. He says, do you not know that in a race, all the runners run, but only one receives the prize. So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly, I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Oh, let's give every effort to build up in our faith and follow after Christ. So today, the invitation is this. Would you come to Jesus? Would you receive this free gift of eternal life that he wants to give you? Would you turn and trust in Jesus and receive that free gift? And then believing in Jesus, would you, would you give your effort in, I want to now follow you. In the power that you supply, I want to follow you. And Lord, develop these things in us. Lord, make us people with virtue and knowledge and self-control and steadfastness and godliness, brotherly affection and love. Let's pray.